Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. This is an RNZ podcast. The Treaty of Waitangi is probably the most important document in New Zealand history, the founding document of Aotearoa. The treaty captures a spirit of partnership and equality, which is very rare in the colonial era. But the way it was written also helped set up a legacy of conflict between Māori and Pākehā. And over the years, it's been neglected both politically and physically. For most of our history, the treaty documents have been ignored by the government. They spent decades buried in a pile of old papers and rubbish. They were damaged by water and gnawed by rats. At one point, they were nearly lost in a fire. In this episode, we're going to look at how and why the treaty was signed and the consequences it's had for Aotearoa. Call William Ray tēnei. Call e Madam McLaughlin tēnei. This is the Aotearoa History Show. We range ourselves without fear beside Britain. Where she goes, we go. Where she stands, we stand. The New Zealander Hillary has succeeded in conquering Mount Everest. Okay, quick recap. We're in the 1830s, and because of the musket wars and the introduction of new diseases, the Māori population has dropped from about 100,000 to around 70 or 80,000. But Māori still outnumbered Europeans by 40 to 1. There were fewer than 2,000 non-Māori in the whole country. The only major European settlement is at Kororareka, also known as Russell. It's home to about 200 Pākehā, a ragtag bunch of traders, missionaries, mutineers and escaped convicts. Kororareka was a busy place. For a while it was the biggest whaling port in the southern hemisphere. It was a party town, a place where sailors could blow off steam after months at sea. Prostitution and alcohol were big business. The missionaries were very upset by all this immoral behaviour. One described Kororareka as... The scourge of the Pacific, which should be struck down by the ravages of disease for its depravity. Those missionaries were probably exaggerating a bit, but there were some serious concerns about what was going on in the town. Rangatira complained that European traders abused them and refused to pay fairly. There were also accounts of underage prostitution involving sailors and Māori girls. So, in 1833, missionaries in Rangatira got together and asked the British Crown to send somebody to sort this all out. That somebody was a guy called James Busby. 
He had the grand title of official British resident, but not much actual power. He couldn't raise troops or command warships, so he had a tough time doing anything. Māori used to make fun of him by calling him a man-of-war without guns. Eventually, though, Rangatira, Busby and the missionaries came up with a plan. First, they set up something called the United Tribes of New Zealand. This was a group of Ngāpuhi Rangatira like Tāmati, Wākanene, Rewa and Patuone, plus a couple of significant chiefs from further south like the Waikato Rangatira, Potato Te Wero Working alongside Busby and the missionaries, the chiefs signed a document declaring their official independence. This document said that Rangatira were sovereign and no foreigners could make laws in Aotearoa. Ultimately, 52 chiefs signed the document, most of them from the north. Britain then formally accepted that declaration. So what's this all about? Well, setting up the United Tribes was partly an effort to keep British subjects in New Zealand under control. But Busby also saw it as a way of drawing the country closer to the British Empire, and this was part of a wider power struggle in the Pacific between the British and other colonial powers particularly the French. Yeah, so there was this crazy wannabe French aristocrat called Baron Charles-Philippe Hippolyte de Thierry. He rocked up to the Bay of Islands, declared himself King of New Zealand, and tried to set up a French colony in Hokianga. There was also another more serious French colony planned down south in Akaroa. Britain's move to officially recognise the independence of the United Tribes created a roadblock for French colonisation. But it wasn't a very big roadblock. The British could only see one way to completely stop the French from annexing Aotearoa. Annex it themselves first. But the Brits weren't all on the same page. A lot of people in the British government thought colonising New Zealand might be more trouble than it was worth. By 1840, the British Empire was already at war in Afghanistan and China and facing rising tensions in India and Crimea. But there were some British subjects who definitely did want a slice of New Zealand, particularly a guy called Edward Gibbon Wakefield. So the story of Wakefield's involvement in New Zealand starts in prison, which might tell you something. In 1826, a 30-year-old Wakefield was sentenced to three years in jail after he abducted a 15-year-old schoolgirl with plans to marry her and get hold of her family fortune. While he was locked up, Wakefield came up with an elaborate scheme for a new kind of colony, which he thought would help ease social tensions in England, boost the British economy and make Wakefield himself super rich and famous. Just the normal kind of thing you think about when you're in jail. Wakefield thought New Zealand was the perfect place to test out his idea for a new colonial system. After he got out of prison, he and his brothers got together with some financiers and set up the New Zealand Company. The success of the New Zealand Company hinged on a plan to buy land cheaply from Māori, sell it to rich colonists at a much higher price, then reinvest the profits in subsidising tickets for poor British workers to sail to New Zealand and become the labouring class. 
Wakefield sold his colony as a kind of utopia, where poor British workers could escape the crime and poverty of the Industrial Revolution in Britain. He described the Wellington region as open, undulating plains, perfect for growing grapes, olives and wheat. strangely forgot to mention anything about the wind. But there was another faction in Britain who had serious concerns with Wakefield's plan. The missionaries in Aotearoa thought his colonisation scheme would inevitably lead to the conquest and extermination of Māori. They were backed up by a group called the Aborigines Protection Society, which had been founded a few years earlier to protect the rights of Indigenous people all over the world. But the pressure to allow colonisation of New Zealand was extremely powerful. British people whose ways of life were being turned upside down by the Industrial Revolution were desperate for a way out. And the New Zealand company were offering what seemed like a perfect escape route. So the authorities in London felt caught between two choices. Option one, allow uncontrolled colonisation by the likes of Wakefield and the French. Or option two have the Crown take direct control of New Zealand and impose what they thought would be a more orderly kind of colonisation. In the end, they went with option two. But the result wasn't exactly orderly. In 1840, a British naval officer called William Hobson arrived in the Bay of Islands with orders to sign a treaty with Māori, transferring their sovereignty to the British Crown. And partly thanks to the efforts of the Aborigines Protection Society, Hobson had very strict instructions about how to negotiate this treaty with Māori. Here's part of those instructions. They must not be permitted to enter into any contracts in which they might be ignorant and unintentional authors of injuries to themselves. So basically, Māori had to sign over their sovereignty willingly. They couldn't be forced or tricked. Seems like a good start, but here's where things start to go wrong. Hobson had not actually written this treaty by the time he got to New Zealand, so the document was cobbled together in a few days by Hobson, James Busby and some of the missionaries. Then it had to be translated into Te Reo Māori so the chiefs could understand it. This translation was done by the missionary Henry Williams and his son Edward in a single night. In fact, the signing of Tetiriti was so rushed, Hobson didn't even have time to get dressed into his fancy naval uniform before he went to the signing ceremony. About 500 Māori arrived at Waitangi, and after the chiefs heard the Māori version of the treaty read aloud, 14 of them got up to give speeches about what they'd just heard. One of the most pointed speeches came from a Naitawake rangatira called Wai. He said this. Will you remedy the selling, the exchanging, the cheating, the lying, the stealing of the whites? Oh, Governor, yesterday I was cursed by a white man. Is that straight? The white gives us natives a pound for a pig, but he gives a white four pounds for such a pig. Is that straight? No, no, they will not listen to you, so go back. Another Ngaitawake rangatira called Rewa had even more dire concerns. Do not sign the paper. If you do, you will be reduced to the condition of slaves and be compelled to break stones on the roads. Your land will be taken from you and your dignity as chief will be destroyed. But some of the chiefs spoke in favour of the governor. One of the most famous was Honeheke. 
Some of you tell Hobson to go. But that's not going to solve our difficulties. We have already sold so much land here in the north. We have no way of controlling the Europeans who have settled on it. I'm amazed to hear you telling him to go. Eventually, more than 40 rangatira agreed to sign the treaty on the day, including some of those who spoke against it. Hobson shook each of their hands and said, Hey, iwi, tahi, tatu. We are now one people. Later, several copies of the treaty went on tours all over Aotearoa. They were signed by about 500 Māori leaders. 13 of those signatures came from Wahine. Hobson sent a letter back to the UK saying the North Island had been ceded to Britain with unanimous adherence. That wasn't true. Several North Island rangatira refused to sign the treaty, including the leaders of Naituhoi, Te Arawa, Ngāti Tuwharetoa and Waikato. Some weren't even asked. Hobson also annexed the South Island without knowing if Naitahu chiefs had signed the treaty. He said this was justified because of the uncivilised state of the natives. Oh, where? Mm. So that alone makes the treaty problematic as a founding document, but it had an even bigger, huger, more enormous problem. The Māori version of Te Tiriti o Waitangi did not say the same thing as the English version. The Māori version promised the chief's tēnō rangatiratanga, usually translated as chiefly authority or self-government. The English version said something different. It said the chiefs ceded sovereignty to the crown, which was translated as kawanatanga. The thing is, kawanatanga was a made-up word from the English word governor, governor kawana, you get it? So it's hard to know what either party intended by committing to both Māori rangatiratanga and British kawanatanga. Here's how one rangatira, Nōpera Panakareao, summarised his understanding of te tiriti. Ko te atarau o te whenua i riro i a te koini. Ko te tīnana o te whenua i waiho ki ngā Māori. The shadow of the land will go to the Queen, but the substance of the land will remain with us. Māori rangatira believed they would stay in charge of their own land and people. They seemed to believe the British governor's authority would be limited to Pākehā people in Aotearoa. But the British had a very different understanding of the treaty. And a year after signing it, Nōpera Panakariao spoke to a missionary outlining his frustration that the governor was acting as if he had complete authority over Aotearoa. That missionary put it like this. Panakariao fears the substance of the land will go to the crown, and the shadow would be the Māori portion. The problem was in Henry Williams' translation. The English version of the treaty did not say that Māori were entering into a power-sharing deal with Rangatira. It said the crown was going to take complete control of Aotearoa. Why did this mistranslation happen? That's a really tricky question. On one hand, it might have just been an honest mistake. Williams and his son did speak te reo Māori, but they weren't expert translators. Plus, this translation was done in a huge rush in the middle of the night, so maybe it's understandable they got some stuff wrong. On the other hand, it might have been deliberate. 
Williams may have believed the treaty was the best way to protect Māori from Pākehā colonists, but also Williams had a vested interest in getting the treaty signed. He had bought a lot of land from Māori and he needed those purchases officially recognised by the British government. So these days, according to modern international law, indigenous translations of treaties take precedence. But back in the 1800s, the contradictory versions of Te Tiriti set up some very big fights between the British and Māori. These conflicts have had lots of names over the years. Originally, they were called the Māori Wars, then it was the Land Wars. These days, it's the New Zealand Wars. conflict was started by the New Zealand Company. In 1843, the company had established settlements in Nelson, Wellington and Whanganui, but they needed more farmland to make those settlements self-sustaining. Luckily, the company had bought extra land in the fertile Waido Valley. Or at least the company thought they'd bought that land. They got the deed to this land from the widow of a sailing captain, a guy called John Blinkensop, who had supposedly bought it from Ngāti Toa in exchange for an old broken-down cannon. Ngāti Toa's intention was only to give this captain rights to water and timber, but Blinkensop wrote a deed awarding himself the whole valley. And this is the deed which Blinkensop's widow sold to the New Zealand company. Dodgy land deals like this were a big part of why Māori signed the Treaty of Waitangi in the first place. William Hobson had promised to investigate land sales and return any land held unjustly. But when the Ngāti Tuaranga Te Rau Paraha and Te Rangi Hayata asked the British to investigate, nothing was done. So Ngāti Tua burned down the huts of some New Zealand company surveyors. The company tried to have those two rangatira arrested. Te Rangi Hayata and Te Paraha tried to resolve things peacefully, but a gunfight broke out and several people were killed, including one of Te Rangi Hayata's wives, Te Rungo Pamamao. Te Rangi Hayata demanded utu for the killing of his wife, so all of the New Zealand company's men were executed. And one of the Pākehā killed was Edward Wakefield's brother, Arthur Wakefield. Luckily, this didn't kick off a full-on war. The new British governor investigated, determined that the New Zealand company had acted illegally and urged both sides to stay peaceful. But just a few years later, in 1845, we see the first major war between Pākehā and Māori. The Northern War. In the five years following the signing of Te Tiriti, the British governors, Hobson and then Fitzroy, started to impose their ideas of sovereignty. Governor Hobson bought land from Ngāti Whātua at Tamaki. He founded the city of Auckland, which he made the new capital of New Zealand. Then Governor Fitzroy brought in new taxes and regulations to help fund his new government. This was all bad news for Ngāpuhi. The taxes and regulations cost them money, and shifting the capital away from Russell significantly disrupted their ability to trade. One of the people most frustrated was Honeheke, the first rangatira to sign that treaty. To Ngāpuhi leaders like Heke, it looked like the British were going well beyond the authority they'd been granted in the Treaty of Waitangi. So Heke and his powerful ally, Teruki Kawati, decided to push back. 
First, Heke did this sort of ceremonially by cutting down the flagstaff at the north end of Kororareka. But he didn't just do this once. He cut it down three times. He really knew how to make a point. Mm -hmm. Then he and Kawati launched a full-on raid of the town. This was probably mostly a distraction so that Heke could cut down the flagstaff for a fourth time. But things got out of hand. 11 people died, and this all sparked the Northern War. Now, not all Māori were on board with Heke's strategy. Lots of northern Māori fought on the British side under the leadership of Tāmati Wākanene. Māori ally themselves with the British all through the New Zealand wars, and they do this for lots of different reasons. Sometimes it's personal. For example, Tāmati Wākanene thought Hone Heke was a cheeky young upstart who should probably show more respect to his elders. In other cases, it's opportunistic. Some rangatira allied with the British to settle old scores with rivals. But there were also genuine disagreements about whether fighting the British was a good idea. Many rangatira felt this was a war they couldn't hope to win in the long run. So in the Northern War, we've got Honeheke and Teruki Kawati and their allies versus the British, Tamati Wakanene and his allies. The British were expecting this to be a quick and easy campaign. They had more men more guns, and lots of artillery. But all that artillery turned out not to be as big a deal as the British had hoped. And that's because Māori had started using a new strategy, trench warfare. Trenches and similar kinds of defensive fortifications go way back in the history of warfare, at least as far back as the Roman Empire. But Māori were among the first to realise how effective these tactics were against modern weapons. During the musket wars of the 1830s, Māori had surrounded their path with flax screens, wooden walls and ditches to block musket balls, slow down enemy charges and give their warriors better positions to shoot from. In the Northern War, Honeheke and Kawati doubled down on their defences. At Ohiawai and Ruapekapeka, they dug anti-artillery bunkers, deep pits in the ground covered with thick logs and earth. These kinds of defences were used throughout the New Zealand wars. Often you see the British charging these par, assuming the defenders had been blown to bits, only to be gunned down by the defenders. Māori also used ambushes and guerrilla warfare to outmanoeuvre the British forces. Thanks to tactics like these, the Northern War basically ended in a stalemate. Tamati Wakanene organised a peace deal and most British troops were withdrawn from Northland. The British just didn't have the military, economic or political power to impose their will on Māori. At least not yet. But thanks to the New Zealand Company, Aotearoa's Pākehā population grew higher and higher. By 1858, Europeans would outnumber Māori in Aotearoa and that would kick off the next phase of the New Zealand wars. Over the next couple of episodes, we're going to see how the conflicts between Māori and the Crown spread into a series of wars which completely reshaped Aotearoa.
The Aotearoa History Show is a 14-part series made possible by the RNZ New Zealand On Air Digital Innovation Fund. The executive producer is Tim Watkin. It's written and produced by William Ray and co-presented by Lee Marama McLaughlin. The sound engineer is William Saunders and it is directed by Duncan Smith. Historical fact-checking by Basil Keane and the Ministry of Culture and Heritage, especially David Green. Archival audio from Ngā Taonga Sound and Vision. A video version of the Aotearoa History Show is available online via the RNZ webpage or on YouTube. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.